Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis 25, we're going to be picking up today in verse 12. And just a little bit of a reveal. You'll remember where we were last time. Last time we looked at verses 8, 9, and 10. 8, 9, and 10. I guess that means we better start in verse 11 today. But 8, 9, and 10. You remember that we looked at that Abraham had passed away. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. That was verse 8. An old man full of years and was gathered to his people. And his son Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre. You remember we looked at one of the things that we emphasized last time that we met was that four-part process when somebody dies. Right here in the earliest words of the first book of the Bible, we have that Abraham, A, breathed his last, all right, and then B, died, and then C, gathered to his people, and then D, he was buried in a cave. And you remember that we looked at that. If you look at it chronologically, what does that suggest? It suggests there's a life after this, that this life is not all there is, and that there, is a, there was a firm belief even back in these days, all right, that early in an afterlife, all right? So that should come as no surprise. But it seems like today in our day and age, there's lots of people that would identify themselves and say, oh, I don't really believe in an afterlife. I believe that we're only here for this, this fleeting moment and you live it up, you know, and do what you can to enjoy it now because after you're dead, you're gone and there's nothing left, right? That's what a lot of people seem to buy into that philosophy. But no, traditionally, historically, the idea is that there is an afterlife and there's obviously lots of other verses we could touch on having to do that. Maybe we'll get to some of those later on today. Uh, but we covered uh, some of that last week, the last time that we met. Uh, so those four things there. And uh, and then verse 11 then. Somebody mind reading verse 11? And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac dwelt in at Beer Lahai Roy. Well done. Good job, Gabriela. <laughs> I saw that coming. I went, uh-oh. <laughs> we got some Hebrew words coming. <laughs> Good job. So here we have, do you see this? It's a passing of the torch. There's kind of a passing of the torch in emphasis or, or focus, all right? The narrative and the people that are reading along with the narrative are, are finding that God is moving his big plan, right? He's moving from his main person being Abraham now to Isaac. It's now going to move in that direction, all right? So Abraham has passed away his... His second oldest son, all right, is Isaac. Who was his first oldest son? Who was the firstborn? Ishmael, right. Ishmael was the firstborn, but in a sense, no. In fact, you remember in the Akedah when God called to Abraham, go sacrifice your son, your only son. In God's eyes, Isaac was the son of promise. Isaac was the only son. Even even after Ishmael was born, in God's eyes, no, it's, it's about Isaac, all right? All along, God intended that to be the case, and God is treating it that way. So here we have the passing of the torch to Isaac. And uh, this idea that God blessed his son Isaac, that God blessed Abraham's son Isaac, um, this is this should not come as a surprise to the reader as we're reading through it, and especially if you look at chapter 17, verse 19. Let's turn to chapter 17, verse 19. Chapter 17, verse 19, this is God speaking to Abraham even before Isaac is born. Somebody mind reading this one verse? 
But God said, No, but Sarah your wife will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after Excellent. Thank you, Levet. There in that verse, God is talking to Abraham. He's saying, your wife Sarah is going to have a son. And do you see what happens right in the verse before that, in verse 18? God had appeared to Abraham and said, you're going to have a son next year. And he's like, oh, hang on. This is going to be complicated. I already have a son. His name is Ishmael. <laughs> and God says, no, that's what we have here in this verse. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about another son, a son of promise. The son is going to be named Isaac. So it's kind of cool. It sounds like God does the naming of Isaac. All right. It's even before Isaac was born then, you had this promise that God was going to establish his covenant with Isaac for what kind of covenant? It doesn't say temporary in your version? No? It's everlasting? How long does that last? That seems like it's the language of a very long time, right? I mean, it sounds to me like it's a very long time. Everlasting, without end, all right? So there's this idea that this covenant that God has made with Abraham is getting conveyed or passed down to Isaac, his son, without the idea that it's going to end with Isaac either. It's not that the covenant that God made with Abraham ended with Abraham. It's that it's moving forward now. The covenant is extended to Isaac, but it's not like it's going to even end with Isaac because you see as that verse ends there in verse 19, it says, an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Sounds like this covenant's going to last a long time. Maybe everlasting? That's the language it's using. I'm just telling you. I'm just pointing that out. All right, everlasting. An everlasting covenant with his descendants after him. Now what I want to do, though, is flip back to where we were. Chapter 25. We looked at verse 11. Now look at the start of verse 12. My version says, now this is the genealogy of Ishmael. This is the genealogy of Ishmael. I'm not saying my version's right. It's just the one I'm using. You guys might have something different. What do you guys have? Any other versions? Out the there? account. Generations or the account of. Very good. All right. And what do you what records, and the records up good so we've got several different translations going here these are all translating the Hebrew word Toledo all right this is a word that we've seen before but it's been a long time it's been almost 14 chapters since we've looked at this it, the book of Genesis it has demarcations it had divisions all right you can parcel up this 50 chapter book into not just chapters the chapter breaks are actually much later all right uh, almost artificial in the sense that that wasn't God's division all right these are man's division man went in and said uh, let's put a chapter break here let's put a verse break here all right that was our that was our we put that on the text just to make it easier to find stuff all right but what you're looking at here is this word Toledoth you find Toledo that shows up in several significant places. I'm going to say 10 significant places in the book of Genesis as, as demarcations or lines of division between sections. All right, Some are short, some are long. It's not like you can take, oh, it's 10 different partitions or 10 different breaks. So the book of Genesis is 50 chapters. Therefore, it must be five chapters each. It's not that at all. All right. For example, we are now embarking. We're transitioning from the one that had to do with Abraham to the one that has to do with who? According to this verse, who is this one going to have to do with? Ishmael. Ishmael, right? How long do you suppose this one? If Abraham's, Abraham's was 14 chapters long, almost 14. It was, it was nearly 14 chapters long. Almost 14 chapters for Abraham. We're going to Ishmael. We're going to a total of seven verses. <laughs> All right? So it's a very short section. <laughs> All right? So it's, it's a wide-ranging amount of material that's devoted to these different places. What's happening is the writer... And Moses, being the author of the book, Moses didn't even live back then. We've talked about that before, right? Moses ends up not showing up anywhere in the book of Genesis. He compiles the information probably from different written accounts and puts them together to make this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So he's putting together these different 
pieces of information. Well, this is a very short piece of information having to do with Ishmael. Why? Because he's not the son of Brahmas. All right? Ishmael is not the direction God is going, but he's going to point out, he's putting it together, and there's just a little bit of material. We're going to cover that today as to what his material covers and why it's put here. And so we have here, we're starting off with this verse, and it says, Now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. So everybody remembers this, you know, you kind of got the family tree in your head. I've drawn it on the board just a little bit here. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac. Abraham and Hagar, Ishmael. Ishmael, 13 years older, or born 13 years before Isaac was born. All right, And you remember how that ended, basically. Once Isaac was born, Mama Sarah said, I don't like this arrangement with Mama Hagar and her kid Ishmael. This is going to be conflict. And so Mama Sarah went to Abraham and said, you need to send them away. And Abraham was all distraught about that. But God appeared to him and said, you know what? This is, this is of me. Send them away. Give them provisions and send them off. All right. So there was this strange arrangement where Abraham sent them away, and that was that was it. They're out of the picture, or as far as we knew. Well, here they're showing up again, at least in the information of their descendants. All right. So that's who we're looking at. That's just to give you a little glimpse of who we're talking about. And this is names. Names. <laughs> you guys love names, right? <laughs> it's a list of names that you don't ever name anybody anymore. At least we don't, right? They're not names that we're familiar with, all right? So here we have a list of names that are given to the descendants of Ishmael. Verse 13, and these were the names of the sons of Ishmael. By their names, according to their generations, the firstborn of Ishmael, Nebel Yoth, then Kadar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadar, or some of yours might say Hadad, Tema, Yeter, Nafish and Kedema. All right. How many do we have there? Twelve. We have twelve names up there, right? Have we run across any list with twelve names before? Yeah. You remember we ran across a list with twelve names once before. Rebecca. Remember her family that she came from? Right before the Rebecca, we were, the first introduction we had was when we met Rebecca, and she was among a list of twelve sons. All right, twelve sons, and then oh, oh, and by the way, there's this girl's name in there. All right, and she ends up, you know, oh, surprise, surprise, she ends up becoming a key figure in our story. All right, so here we have another list of twelve. All right, um, regarding these these names here, you'll find the same or similar list over in First Chronicles chapter one, verses twenty nine through thirty one. One notable exception in there is this list has Hadar, that list has Hadad. Uh, you're going to find variations in spellings. All right, because this is not these were not English names. All right, these are translations. And so English has this translation. If you use a different translation, it might have a slightly different spelling or a different uh, rendering, if you will. Uh, you also find that these are sons. There's no daughters mentioned, but we do find out later as we read through the book of Genesis that uh, Ishmael had at least two daughters. One of them is mentioned over in chapter 28. We'll meet her. That's Mahalath. And then later on in chapter 36, we'll meet Basemath, two that are specifically mentioned as daughters of Ishmael and also sisters to the first name on that list of Nebuchadnezzar. All right. Here's one of the things I want you to notice when we're talking about these names, and you've seen this before. This is not fiction. These are not just made up. They don't just show up here for the first time and never show up anywhere else. These are actually attested to outside the Bible. All right. So uh, this first one that we've got listed here, he uh, becomes in, as is the case with a lot of these names, these individuals end up becoming families that end up becoming tribes that end up becoming you know, identified with regions, okay? So these, think of them as an individual, but think of them as expanding over time and getting much larger than just a, an individual that still carries on with the name or can be identified by the name. So anyway, he and his people eventually, or the tribe, ends up being identified in Assyrian and Arabic uh, inscriptional references. That's outside the Bible. This is a test to by archaeology, all right? Uh, another one, Kedar, looking at Kedar, uh, 
Kedar and Nebaioth are both closely related. We find them mentioned again in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 7. And then they're located in Arabia, or they're identified with an area in the uh, eastern delta of Egypt and the southern Negev and the Transjordan in the 5th century. They're mentioned in association with a prominence in the um, spice trade. All right, it's situated in such a way that they have kind of a trade route, a trade route thing going on, where lots of caravans would pass through this area from going from this place to that place, and so they end up being associated with that incense trade route. And then they're also identified in other places as being people that are nomadic. They live in tents. It's mentioned that they live in tents, not in cities, and so they're kind of a wandering group of people. All right. Uh, so Ad Beal, the um, reference to him outside of the Bible, you've got. Tiglath Pileser. Anybody ever heard of him? He's actually somewhat famous if you start to do your Bible studies and look at kings and battles and, and stuff like that from outside the Bible. You end up running across this guy's name. He ends up conquering the people that descend from this person right here, Adbeel. Mibsam means spice or balm, so another association with the spices or the incense. Mishma, kind of obscure. Nothing much talking about Mishma. Duma. Duma ends up being, according to Kenneth Matthews, identified with the oasis Dumat al-Gandal, known as al-Juf today, as in modern day, as in there's really a place that's still associated with this guy, all right? An oasis town centrally located in the, in the North Arabian Peninsula, a key point in the incense trade. So here we've got another incense trade key point thing, connecting both west to Palestine and northeast to Babylon. This was a site known as Adumata in Assyrian and Babylonian records. This is not an Assyrian record. This is not a Babylonian record. But this guy is attested to outside of the Bible. Archaeologically, these are real people. All right? This is not like some document that's uh, you know some obscure religion that just makes up their own names for a bunch of people that never existed. All right? These are real people that really gave rise to real people groups. All right? Masa, he's an Arabian tribe or associated with an Arabian tribe. Now, I guess Masa'in is the name that came to be known as the tribe name. And then mentioned also in Assyrian records along with Tima. We're going to get to Tima, two people from here. Next one is Hadar or Hadad over in First Chronicles. The name Hadad, Hadad appears for two Edomite kings later on, so it becomes a popular name. And also in the line of Esau for the Edomite ruler who opposed Solomon. You'll find that in First Kings chapter 11. Again, real people. Tima, Tima, another oasis town located strategically in the northwest Arabian where caravan routes converge, making it a major power. You see kind of this theme here? If you're the first people on the scene, right, if you're the first people on the line, you can, you can get situated anywhere you want. If there's an oasis, you're going to take the oasis. If it's a desert, you want the oasis, all right? Mm -hmm. So here are the people groups spreading out across the desert, taking uh, these strategic positions that, uh, you know, if you're a caravan and you're going across the desert, you're going to want to know where the oasis are. And so you're going to make it a point to stop in these places. So that's how they become powerful, being on these trade routes. Archaeological remains include pottery from the second millennium. And the Babylonian king Nabonidus fortified this city that came from the people descending from Tima as his capital, residing in Arabia for 10 years and leaving Babylon to his son Belshazzar to administrate. You'll find uh, some references or correlations to the book of Daniel, chapter 5 over there. Yatur, this uh, tribe of Yatur was in the north Transjordan where it succumbed to the Israelites. You can read that, about that in First Chronicles 5, verses 18 and 19. And I'm sorry, this is such driver material, right? It's just kind of hard to move through. It's like, I want to hear just a good parable mm -hmm. <laughs> or something, you know? But here we are. But one of the things I want you to take away is, is just to realize that the Bible is rooted in history. That this isn't some novel that's in the category of fiction. As much as you might have people try to tell you that. That's just not what this is. This is truth. 
And one of the ways that people, well, how are you going to prove it? You know, prove, prove to me the Bible is real. Well, okay, how about archaeological evidence? All right, <laughs> I'm not sure I believe it. All right, sometimes people's hearts are hard no matter what you tell them. And they'll put up little smoke, uh, smoke screens as to what they think it takes to convince them, and you overcome that, and they're like, well, I'm still not convinced. All right, so just recognize that's why that's what we're talking about now, and that's one of the main things I want you to take away from this is that these are real. These are real people from real history, real places on the map. You've seen us. We've had the map up before we've gone here. It's right here. It's right here. It's right here. It's right here. You know, and we could do that too, but quite frankly, it's Ishmael. All right, <laughs> Ishmael. We're just moving through Ishmael. All right. Uh, next one, Nafish. He appears with Jeter among those defeated by the Transjordan Israelites. That's in First Chronicles chapter 5. And then Kedema. Kedema. Kedema actually means toward the east, and sometimes it's translated Easterners. And then there's actually an Arabic name, Kudama, which comes from this name, Kedema. So this person named Kedema gives rise to, I guess, a modern name that you could, I guess, find somebody named Kudama. And then this is associated with North Arabian tribe, Kedar. All right. So again, just like I said, these are real people. These are real places. This is not fiction. Verse 16. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names. By their towns and their settlements, 12, how many? 12 princes according to their nations. 12. Why am I emphasizing that? Turn to Genesis 17. Genesis 17, verses 20 through 21. Genesis 17. So what are we doing? We're flipping back like eight chapters, right? Genesis 17, 20 and 21. Somebody mind reading this. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes. Wait, how many? 12 princes. Oh. I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Thank you, Esther. And thank you for letting me interrupt you there as you were reading. All right. You can get why I was emphasizing the word 12, right? Because God had made that promise before. What was the setting there? The setting there was Abraham. Abraham at that precipice of having to send away his son Ishmael, his 13-year-old son and, and Hagar, and he's conflicted, right? He's conflicted about having to do that. And God assures him, don't worry about it. I got this. I'm going to be taking care of him. All right? And sends him off, and God makes a promise to Abraham about Ishmael. Ishmael is not the son of promise. But God, nonetheless, makes a promise to bless with bounty, 12 sons. And here we see, what am I showing you now? The fulfillment. I'm showing you the fulfillment, that God follows through on his promises. Have we seen that before? Does God keep his promises? Absolutely. We've run across this time and again that God keeps his promises. And here it shows up again. God fulfilled. God kept his promises. And what does that do for us? That assures us that any promises he's made to us that haven't been fulfilled yet are not 50-50. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. That means that he's going to fulfill his promises. He has a track record that it's immaculate. It's, there's, there's no errors in God keeping his promises. And at the end of all things, those promises that aren't yet fulfilled will be fulfilled. We can hold on to those and trust God to keep his promises. When will we see the fulfillments? Remember, we looked at Abraham's life. A lot of those weren't in his lifetime. Some of these aren't going to be in my lifetime or yours. We're going to see fulfillments of promises that come to pass after we pass through to the other side. And quite frankly, that makes sense because some of the promises have to do with what to look forward to on the other side. All right? So God keeps his promises. How about this one? 
Genesis 17, 4. What does verse 4 there say? Somebody mind reading that one? God talking to Abraham here now. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of the multitude of nations. Who is God talking to? Abraham. He's talking to Abraham. So this is not a promise that God made to Abraham about Ishmael. This is a God made a promise to Abraham. And we're seeing that fulfilled as well. Because so far, as far as the son of promise, Isaac, there hasn't been a whole bunch of nations yet. But we do, interestingly, have a fulfillment of that promise through Ishmael's sons who become nations. So God's already fulfilling promises. Now, is God concerned with the Ishmaelites and those nations as far as his big grand plan for what he's going to do? No, he's not. He's concerned with them as he would be concerned about anybody else. But as far as this great big plan that he seems to have that's going to be going through Abraham, through Isaac, and is going somewhere, I don't know, maybe to Jesus. Oh, am I giving it away? Is that a spoiler alert? All right, this big plan doesn't go through Ishmael. It goes through Isaac. Again, we see these captives promises with the 12 sons, and we're seeing that it, there's a fulfillment of that promise as the father of many nations. We're seeing nations start to rise, and we're going to see much more as far as nations rising. How about Genesis chapter 22? Genesis chapter 22, verses 20 through 24 and I'm just going to make a quick reference to this because we actually had this in a previous study. But here, what do we see here? Here's where we see that list of 12. A list of 12 sons that were born to relatives of Abraham's back in his homeland. All right, And they're the ones that uh, Rebecca came from. So here we saw that first list of 12 significant names, 12 significant sons. All right, And they're the Aramean tribes. And here we're seeing the 12 uh, named sons of Ishmael, the tribes arising out of Ishmael. Eventually, we're going to see two more sets of 12. That's kind of weird, and you're probably wondering, two more? I thought there was only one more. Well, I guess we'll have to we'll have to look at those when we get to them. All right, next one, verse 17. Somebody mind reading verse 17, chapter 25, verse 17. Altogether, Ishmael lived 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and he was gathered to his people. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. And I know you have to leave, so I apologize. <laughs> no, All right, so uh, how long did he live? 137 years. 137 years. How long did... Abraham, his dad lived. 175. You seen the age go down? The ages are going down. We're still seeing that pattern since the time of the flood. Everybody's ages is kind of in general going down. All right. So here he's passed away at 137 years. This is about 48 years after Abraham died. All right. Notice also the, the similarities to what we saw over in verse 8 that he breathed his last, that he died. And then he was gathered to his people. This, again, harkens back to that study that we had over there about uh, when we saw when Abraham breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people and was buried. All right? Um, we've got two different deaths in nine verses. All right? Kind of a bummer. Key figures in the Bible, and we're running across them, we're finding out, you know, I guess death is a part of life in the sense as we're reading through this material. Can I just say, uh, I'm looking forward to the day when death will be swallowed up. All right? Anybody else? I'm sure there's a lot of us in here that say, I'm looking forward to that day when death will be swallowed up in victory. All right? But we're not there yet. We're still looking forward to it. Okay? The price has already been paid. All right? It's already been secured. We're good to go, but it hasn't yet been in, uh, implemented or put into effect, if you will. All right? We're looking forward to a resurrection beyond this life. Once you die, there's a resurrection. We're looking forward to that. There's a resurrection of the righteous, and there's a resurrection of the unrighteous. All right? We're looking forward to a day. But we've got this life to go through while we're here. Make the most of it in living for God is what the theme of the Bible would be. Uh, but regarding this resurrection, I want you to turn to another place. Luke, Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, we're going to verses 27 through 38. And that's quite a bit of material, but I'll read through it pretty fast. 
Let me give you the picture. All right? It starts off in verse 27. Then some of the Sadducees, let me tell you about the Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection. There was a group called the Pharisees. They did, and the Sadducees did not. Paul put that to good use later on when you read the book of Acts. But here we have the Sadducees, and they're coming to try to trick Jesus. And it says there in verse 27, Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came to Jesus, came to him, and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, sorry, picture in your mind, picture you're a man, <laughs> picture your brother dies, all right? If a man's brother dies having a wife, okay, so your brother who had a wife dies, all right? And he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, now you're probably like, you lost me. This is weird. What? What are we talking about? There was a provision. If your brother died and your brother had been married and then you guys, they didn't have children yet, there was a provision in the law where you were to go and you were to supply children for your brother that has passed away so that line could continue. So there's this provision, and the Sadducees know that, and they're using that in coming to Jesus and trying to trick him and to try to get him to see their way of seeing things, that really there can't be a resurrection because of this situation, right? So they're bringing the situation to Jesus and trying to trick him. Verse 29, now there were seven brothers, so they're making up this hypothetical, and we're all familiar with hypotheticals, right? All right, so yeah, I got this hypothetical for you. So suppose he has seven brothers, all right? So seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. All right, got it so far. And the second, all right, so the second brother in line, takes her, and under his obligation to raise offspring for the deceased brother, and unsuccessful, no kids. Third brother, no kids. Fourth brother, no kids. Fifth brother, no kids. You got all these marriages, who? Here's the trick. They come to Jesus and they say, so, at the resurrection, because we don't believe in a resurrection, at the resurrection, if there is even a resurrection, we know there isn't, at the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? I mean, if she was married to seven, and they all had their own families, this is really messy. How does this work out? And they're like, surely this could prove to Jesus that there is no resurrection. So what does he end up saying? Go to verse 34. Jesus answered and said to them, the sons of this age marry. Now he's telling us a little bit about the resurrection. We get a glimpse into what it's going to be like. Because we don't know, we haven't been there yet. So he's telling them what it's going to be like, and we benefit from having these words recorded by Luke. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age... And the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore. Yay for that. And they are equal to the angels. Are they angels? No, they're not angels. We do not become angels. Human beings, when they die, do not become angels. In case anybody's unclear about that. <laughs> the little babies that you see with the little wings, the, no. There's no little baby that becomes an angel. Angels are a distinct, different creation than humankind. All right? So babies and angels separate that idea from your head. There's no, you know, cherubs with the little wings and the little halo and the little naked bottoms, you know, and you, know, you get what I'm saying. All right, here we go. All right. Equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage, Jesus is referring back to Exodus chapter 3. In the burning bush passage, Moses goes to the bush. He's like, this is weird. There's a bush in the middle of the desert burning, but it's not burning up. And God meets him there. And Moses is like, oh, who are you? <laughs> and he introduces himself as, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's in the book of Exodus. Abraham, dead. Isaac, dead. Well, we haven't seen him die yet. Spoiler alert, there too for you. All right, Isaac, dead. And Jacob, dead. By the time of Moses, they're all three dead. But this God who appears to him in the burning bush says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He does not say, I was the God of. He says, I am the God of. Present tense. I am their God. Now, I was their God. 
past tense, as if he was only their God in that life. He's their God beyond that life. He's God present tense of those people. And Jesus is using that as an illustration to say, what does he say here? In the burning passages that the dead are raised when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Jesus is saying, God doesn't use bad grammar. God didn't make a mistake when he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They passed from life into death, but they passed into life again, or resurrection. So Jesus is countering and saying, if you understood the scriptures, you'd realize that God is the God of the living. There is a resurrection, and otherwise God would make a mistake in saying he was the God, present tense, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is a resurrection, is what Jesus is saying. I'm looking forward to that day. Having two deaths right here and nine verses, I'm looking forward to a resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 is the chapter known as the resurrection chapter. I love these verses. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. This body that we live in right now, this body is sown in corruption. This body is, you know what corruption means. It's like a banana gets old and rotten. You know, <laughs> you get what I'm saying? I mean, that's what I picture when I picture this body. It's like that banana getting brown on my counter and eventually it's just thrown out. All right? This body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, but it's raised in what? Raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. I feel it. I'm getting older. My knees, my back. I'm feeling weakness I didn't used to feel. Sown in weakness, raised in power. This is yet. Yeah, this is a promise of God, not yet fulfilled. This is a promise of God. Has he kept his record? Yeah, he's got a great record. He's going to fulfill this one too. This body, sown in weakness, will be raised in power. It is sown a natural body, or will be raised a spiritual body. Paul says in Philippians chapter one, verse twenty-one: For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is Christ and die is gain. And there's this whole discussion right there in Philippians chapter 1 where Paul is saying, gosh, I want to be with the Lord, but I also realize that it's beneficial for me to be staying here because I recognize he's, got, he's still working through me and I got you know, stuff to offer you, but I'd really rather be with him. But you know, no offense. You know? <laughs> so there's this whole discussion where it's like wherever you're at, live for God. Here in this life, live for God. But look forward to it. The, there's no reason to fear death. There's no reason to fear death if you're in Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, there's no reason to fear death. <laughs> Woe to you, though, if you are not a follower of Christ. If you have not given your life over to Christ, if you have not given your life over to God, oh yeah, fear death. Because there's nothing good news for you. Alright? So if you haven't given your life to Christ, you need to. Because it's dramatic. It's going to be dramatic, the difference. Alright? For those who have passed from this life into the next. Whether you had Christ in your life or not. Alright? It's not so much about what we know. It's about who we know. When we pass from this life into the next, it's about who we know, much more than about what we know. You can know this whole thing inside out. You can memorize it. My girls, they memorize, they're memorizing scripture. And I try to tell them, though, that's great. I'm, I'm so proud of you. As your dad, I'm so proud of you. You memorized whole books of the Bible. I'm, I'm wonderful with that. But it doesn't matter how much you know if it doesn't show in your life. If you're not living it, if it's not real for you. If you're treating your sisters so mean that I have to have this talk with you, then is this really in you? You know, we have this talk. It doesn't matter how much you know. It matters who you know. And it's also this. It doesn't matter so much what you've done for God as what he's done for you. Doing stuff for God, that's great. But that doesn't get you to heaven. It's not winning your way to heaven. It's not earning brownie points with God. It's not so much what you've done for God or what you've done in the name of humanity or what you've done for whatever great cause you can think of. It's about what God's done for us because there's no way we can do enough good stuff to get to heaven. It's about the one good thing he did for us. 
among many. But what I, you know what I'm saying. The one good thing being he died for our sins. He died on the cross. He submitted himself for us. He became our Passover lamb. He became that blemish-free sacrifice in our place. It should have been us up there. And he died in our place so that we could have a place of an eternity with him in fellowship with him. One of my other favorite verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Again, going back to chapter 15, verses 50 through 58, it says this, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised (sighs) incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass, then shall be brought to pass, then shall be brought to pass. The saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can experience victories right here and right now in our life, but this particular one is reserved as a promise from God, still yet future. And God keeps his promises, and I'm looking forward to the day when we will see the fulfillment of this promise. One more. Oh, great. I said one more, and I have two more. (laughs) All right, two more. All right, I'll make it fast. Here we go. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. And when will that be and what will that look like? Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. We're looking forward to the day. I'm looking forward to the day when we're going to be standing in front of God, and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. And we're going to be like, you know what, anything I got, any rewards I got, they belong to you. They're all, you know, this crown, that you, it's, it's yours. And what am I going to walk into? Am I going to walk into this big pearly gate, and it's going to be like this cloud environment, right? And we're going to go in, there's like harps. Go pick your harp out, you know. But, but no! We're going to walk into a banquet hall. It's going to start with a marriage supper, all right? Who's the bride? We are. The body of Christ. Those who are followers of Jesus, all of us, together as the bride. And we're going to go in, and it's going to be a marriage supper. What is a marriage supper? It's this celebration we just got married, all right? Lebet's celebrating five years right now. Imagine it being day one, all right? You just got married, and you got all of eternity to look forward to, and you're never going to be bored. Don't worry about that, all right? It's people are like, I'm going to get bored. It's a long time. <laughs> God's got you covered. He's going to take you. All right, we've got to wrap it up somehow. Here's where we're going to wrap it up. We're going to go to verse 18 verse 19. Then he dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. As you go to Ashur in Assyria, he died in the presence of all his brethren. Verse 19, this is the genealogy of Isaac. There's that Toledoth again. So in verse 19, you see that it's basically, that's all you're going to get on Ishmael. It's done, all right? So basically, the narrative says, here's where he is. Oh, by the way, wanted to show you, God kept his promises. Now, moving on to Isaac is what the text is doing, all right? God keeps his promises, and moving on, following the son of promise. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that once again we see you keep your promises. We can't find anywhere where you didn't keep your promises. We can't find anywhere where it's like, oh, oops. All right. He's not got a perfect record anymore. No, God. You show yourself real. You show yourself faithful. We thank you also as we're looking through this material. These are, these are weird names, Lord. These are names we've sometimes maybe never heard of. 
But it, it turns out they're showing up in history. They're showing up in archaeology and it's just verifying that your word is trustworthy. Mm-hmm. We thank you, Lord, for little glimpses like that. We thank you also, Lord. We look forward to the day when we can pass from this life to the next. But as we are still here on this earth, help us, Lord, and empower us to do the things you want us to do. Your word says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. But then the next verse says, we were created to do those good works that were prepared for us in advance. And so we pray that you would equip us and empower us to do those good works that you prepared for us in advance to do, making the most of the time this brief life that we have here on earth. Thank you, Lord. We look forward to the day to be with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right. So good to be with you guys.